Right now, Amazon is offering some amazing extra perks that come with a job offer. If you start a warehouse job, you can get a $1,000 sign-on bonus. That means you start earning a paycheck right away, plus you get extra cash to use before the holidays. Applying is so easy, you don't even need an interview. It's never been so rewarding to start an hourly job that's close to home. So what are you waiting for? To join the team today, visit Amazon.com slash sign-on bonus. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Or should I say, hello, my darklings, um, <laughs> to another episode of Pop Screen, the Geek Show podcast dedicated to movies starring about, or in this case, written and directed by pop stars. You know, the movie podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from documentaries to science fiction, from country and western to hip hop. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a film critic for The Geek Show and a filmmaker myself. I also write for Horrified.com, the British horror website. And I've been joined this week by... Ewan Glado. Hello. Hello. Where can people find your work, Ewan? Uh, people can find my work on Cult Following, Clapper, Geek Show, and now more recently, Spark Sunderland. Um, mm. that's all new nice well Glenn Danzig is clearly a man with some kind of aesthetic the stylized skull logo of his first band the Misfits has been worn on comfortably more t-shirts than you suspect anyone who has ever listened to the band's music unless you know I don't know. I, I try not to profile, but I look at some people wearing Misfits t-shirts and I think maybe some of you are not big fans of 1980s hardcore punk, but it's fine. It's no wonder with this kind of track record that he would branch out into visual media, starting his comics company Verotic, a portmanteau of erotic and ver, I guess. Um and making this film adaptation of uh, three stories from that comics line, it's called Verotica. It was compared upon its premiere to The Room, and I kind of hoped that would be the Oscar-winning Brie Larson movie, but listeners, it really, really, really is not. So... I said before we we joined that I wanted to send you a link to the Zoom meeting for this and a formal apology for making you sit through this. I mean, you know, this is our job, but there are there are times in our careers where I, I question why we're here and why we do the things we do, and this was one such moment. Um, I. I, I really like so bad it's good films, but there's something about watching them at like half two in the afternoon, sleep deprived from work. It's like it loses its edge a little bit or it's going to tip me over the other side. And I don't know what happened with this. When I was doing my notes and research, I couldn't help but notice that Glenn Danzig's most recent album is an Elvis Presley covers album. That's um, exciting. I would prefer to listen to that <laughs> than watch Verotica again. 
Well, that's the thing. I think I would watch Verotica again. I'll just put that out there. I would. Not for the right <laughs> reasons. Not for Danzig's reasons. It's very much a... See, this is why we don't let musicians direct films. We learned this lesson with Fred Durst and The Fanatic, but here we are again. Um, yeah, I mean, it probably doesn't help just to, just to put it out there. I'm not the biggest fan of horror, modern horror especially, because... To be honest, it's it's not even a, an artsy snob thing. It's just I'm quite easily frightened. Don't like stuff like that. Terrified. Nice. Um, but Danzig, no trouble there. Not not nothing very terrifying <laughs> about this one. More more confusing. Um, and mm. I'm sure we'll get into that. It, it's, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's the most confusing, completely linear <laughs> film that I've ever seen. Like anyone could sit through Inland Empire and come away perplexed, but there's there's a certain magic to watching something that has no <laughs> plot twists whatsoever and coming out of it and thinking, "What the fuck was that?" I've never seen something so simple yet so fascinatingly confusing yes. in all my days. It's, I think, a lot of it. You know, it'd be hard to just dismiss this as a that's as bad as the room because it is. Mm, but yeah. I think the reasons behind it are so vastly different to what the room was going for, and it's kind of just odd in a way. Yeah, it's just really the thing about Danzig. I mean, his music isn't for me. I think my my impression of it, Danzig, the band, a kind of. Uh, his take on like early metal like Black Sabbath and stuff like that no right that's not my thing the Misfits I quite like some of because it's more punk inflected and I like punk music but it's it's never been something that I've been like massively into um, but he's not a dumb guy you know he's talked about his no, favourite no. directors and he's mentioned John Cocteau and David Cronenberg and you'd, you'd think that a filmmaker influenced by John Cocteau and David Cronenberg would produce something really great for their first movie and it's it's that there, it's the difference between is he replicating the quality or is he replicating the tone because there are moments in Veronica, I hate to say it, where my first thought was if this had been directed with a bit more competency, David Cronenberg probably could have pulled that off. It's especially the opening of the very first one, where the man and the woman are on the couch. Mm. Stuff like that kind of reminds me of Cronenberg, but not... Cronenberg would never do anything that stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And it's remarkable because... We are doing a Cronenberg film for this Halloween month. Our Halloween special is going to be Videodrome because Debbie Abbey's in it. Um, And and it's remarkable to think that there was once a time when Cronenberg was dismissed as just this schlock and gore merchant. He's a guy who casts porn stars and pop stars and he has them sort of disemboweled and grow weird organs out of themselves. He just does gross out stuff. But yeah, I'm struggling to see the underpinning thematic intelligence in Verotica. I think that's the, that's the one issue I have, and it's it's not just with Verotica, it's with a lot of these sort of segmented episodic films, it's that there is a tone or a message that links them all together most of the time. With Verotica, there's, there isn't, apart from these yeah. are horror. That's, that's the thing, isn't it? I think that's the most crucial problem with it, because he's going for that EC Comics Tales from the Crypt kind of vibe. It's an anthology film. It's a lot of sort of gory horror stories with a host in between making bad puns. And you, you can see that that's exactly what he's going for. And it's a fine thing to go for. I think it's, you know, a, a venerable tradition. But 
it makes you realize that even though Tales from the Crypt isn't terribly sophisticated in a lot of ways, there is a craft to that kind of storytelling. They tell little tales with a twist, which is like the oldest and most satisfying form of horror campfire stories. Whereas the standard story in Verotica is there is a killer, right? And they're killing some people. And then it ends when either they are killed or they get away and go to kill more people. Now, <laughs> we've, I imagine we've both seen at least three films that do that sort of thing. Oh, shit. Spoilers, everyone, by the way. I just didn't think about that. <laughs> it's, yeah, and it's, it's that simplicity that really does... I mean, th there's a hell of a lot that draws back Danzig's style of direction, but the simplicity of his story and why he repeats it twice after we've seen it once already, yeah. it's mind-blowing. Um, I think, I, I suppose there is a, a sort of sense to it, though, as well, because the, the, the one big thing for horror is consistency, and it's mm. knowing and identifying what works, such as the killer getting away with a lot of killing. It's the slasher effect. It's If you can show that well and often enough, it might turn something well, like the Freddy versus Jason series that just culminated in absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, but stuff like Verotica, it's on paper, it does make sense. Why he's wanting mm. to do this. It's like, oh, and then she'll, it, the opening of it was very much Elvira like, where she pokes the eyes out of the woman and then she turns mm. to the camera and like, this is Veronica. It reminded me of the old sort of, you know, I hate to use these two names in the same sentence, but Glenn Danzig's direction here reminded me a bit of Alfred Hitchcock when he did the TV show and he would introduce it. Alfred Hitchcock it. presents, yeah. That's the one, yeah. yeah. And it's that effect that he's going for. And it's like you've said, Danzig's a smart guy. He knows who decided his references. And it's it's clear who's influenced them, but he just he tries to replicate them rather than draw from what he's learned from them. In fact, let's let's go a bit further. I think despite the the sort of weird pointlessness of being introduced to your host as she gouges someone's eyes out and then they're never mentioned again which is yeah okay fair enough um i, I think the host parts are the part that i found the easiest to enjoy um yeah. i think they have their own kind of corny rhythm i think caden cross who plays the host is pretty charismatic in, she's an adult film star and this is one of those horror movies that has a lot of porn stars in and most of the time I was thinking oh no how terrible for them to be trapped in something that doesn't have the cinematic ambition and carefully tuned dialogue of their day work uh, but Cross is pretty good and I thought those segments were the nearest it gets to being fun in the way that it wants to be yeah, and I think that's where Veronica, we can kind of not defend it, because to defend Veronica is sort of just it's a doomed some, something I would not do. <laughs> but it, it, it is where the sort of Danzig realises this is the closest he'll get to realising whatever his vision was. It's the, the late night Saturday entertainment where they're introducing little horror segments. Completely. And it's, yeah, and it's nice. And it's it, it definitely could have been handled better because the, the gore and the effects do look quite cheap. Yes, yeah. But for a first-time effort, there is at least sort of an ambition there, which you, you don't yeah. quite see sometimes. And I can sort of enjoy some corny, bad gore effects and bad puns in a sequence which is going, as you say, for the sort of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark approach, rather than something that wants to... Well, let's jump into it. Let's talk about that first segment, which is called The Albino Spider of Dejet. Do we have to? <laughs> 
<laughs> the first thing that struck me is like you're introduced uh, to this scene and somebody's giving a blowjob, but there's a spider in the background, so it's horror, right? It's definitely <laughs> yeah, horror. Yeah. <laughs> the woman is like begging her boyfriend to keep her shirt on, which just made me think this is what the contract negotiations to star in Verotica must have been like. It probably was. They don't have the budget to do this sort of thing. I will say, though, it's you mentioned the spider there. Yeah. That's. I don't listen to much heavy rock. I used to live with someone that live, used to listen to a lot of heavy rock. Yeah. And my understanding of heavy rock, sort of not being influenced or seeing it firsthand, but sort of observing it from afar, is that people think spiders, sex, and satanic symbols are very scary. Yes, and that's it. Yeah, they use that as logos and emblems. It's like uh, if if I put like a, a spider on this jacket, people would think, "Oh, he's in the he's in a Black Sabbath," sort of that sort of thing. It's like, yeah, just broad images that can you can shove in there. And I don't think Danzig's capable of letting that go. Where it's oh, spiders are scary, aren't they? Maybe in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, We're forty years beyond that. I was just sort of thinking, it's just wonderful to imagine that Danzig, who is, I believe, 66 years old, 66 years, let it sink in. Danzig is like filming this spider thinking this is going to freak people out. Earlier this year for Pop Screen, I watched the Apple TV documentary about Billie Eilish, where she's like relaxing at home and just letting tarantulas crawl all over her because she thinks they're cute. And it's like... Yeah, this this definitely this isn't going to hit a younger generation in the way that you want it no. to. I think. I mean, to be fair, I'm probably part of that younger generation. I I spent a lovely week in the '90s when I was born. But other than that, I'm kind of the new generation. But yeah, I'm 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 arachnophobic. I'm terrified of spiders. The spider in this opening segment and also the opening credits, it's not good. It looks dreadful. It looks like the sort of CGI that was used in like the first Spider-Man movie, but somehow even worse. It's yeah. like that that matte effect where it's the the spider feels rather bulky and sheeny, and it just yes. doesn't look right. And it just looks off, like Toy Story does. But Toy Story at least has nostalgia to it, as does the first Spider-Man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's that style of animation and the CGI that just it doesn't sit right, especially not when you've got. HD camera equipment. Oh God, no, no. <laughs> but let's let's go back to the woman who's trying to yes. to keep her top on, uh, which in this movie is just the most doomed effort that you can possibly have. Um, once her top is removed, she has, and I assume this is what triggered your sort of Cronenberg recollection. She has. Oh, it triggered my fight or flight response more than anything. <laughs> uh, it was terrifying. <laughs> She has she has eyes for nipples, or as her boyfriend sensitively puts it, your teeth. They're looking at me. They're looking at me. Oh, that was one of the many moments in this film where my sleep-deprived brain just sort of cracked in half. I'm like, oh no. But <laughs> it was when you mentioned Danzig's age, 66. My first thought wasn't, oh, that makes sense. It was just kind of a oh, bless him. He's trying something new at his tender old age. Um because he's, what's he doing here, <laughs> really? <laughs> like, this is a guy that 
cites his influences, not just in film, but as like Elvis Presley, Jim Morrison, Sergio Leone. Mm. He's influenced by some of the greatest artists of the 20th and 21st century. What's he doing here? Like, I don't, I don't see the correlation between who he's influenced by and yeah. what he's actually putting out there. It's like me seeing I'm influenced by like Dostoevsky. I can't write like that. I'll never write like that. But to me, for me to say that is is pretentious. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, I think I, I can understand someone who enjoys watching sort of Leone and uh, Cocteau sort of wanting to do something that is just a big, fun, trashy horror workout because big, fun, trashy horror workouts are big fun. But yeah. there, there is definitely something in this which is... In fact, th- there's a letterboxed review that I went to in researching this uh, from Lee Colx. Yes, who, yeah, I read this yeah, one too. Yeah. He was there at the premiere, and Danzig is entirely earnest about this. And I think he, he wants it to be kind of grindhousey, but he doesn't want it to be corny. I think the nearest thing to that he said was, um, he said, the film isn't concerned with 20-minute long shots at the beach with no dialogue, like all that Hollywood bullshit. It's like, for a start, has somebody played a practical joke on Glenn Danzig? Have they lent him a, a DVD of Abbas Kivastami's five long takes <laughs> dedicated to Ozu and said, you want to see the new Spielberg, Glenn? <laughs> Someone has opened a fake DVD shop near his home, but every DVD is either a ghost story or Satan Tango. And he's been stuck <laughs> watching these two films on a loop for years, and he's about ready to flip. So he's made this sort of inconsequential, lacking cohesion, nonsense trilogy as a as a fight back against Bellatar and more uh, power to him. Glenn Danzig sat watching the tracking shot at the bottom of the river in Tarkovsky's Stalker, thinking, Jesus Christ, Star Wars has gone down the drain, hasn't God. it? He sat watching Ben Hur tapping at his wristwatch, going, Well, it's a bit long, lads, you know, you can cut <laughs> this down. It's I think it's it's the, the brevity of time that he wishes to adapt here. It's that people he, he respects the time of the audience. They've no time to learn character names or what needs to happen. And I think, I don't know if it's me just being uptight about the horror genre, but the best horror experiences I've had are where people are just getting hacked and slashed. And it's just very, you know, one of the nicest things about the later Nightmare on Elm Street films, which to be honest, are awful, <laughs> but th- their creativity is something I can appreciate, especially when it's sort of pop culture relevant. There's a, there's a one kill that was like very close to Aha's take on me video. And it's sort of <laughs> stuff like that that I can appreciate. Veronica yeah. doesn't have that. And I, I think that's the issue is that if you're going to make a horror trilogy in the modern era, then you kind of got to use pop culture either to your advantage or to criticize. It's not impossible to do it without, but I think someone like Danzig certainly needs to because he's got nothing else to say. And really the fallback would be let's criticize something easy like pop culture. Yeah. And I mean, it, it doesn't help that sense, uh, as you say, of trying to work out what kind of world this is rooted in and what kind of movie this is going to be when you've got a lot of American actors doing very bad French accents in the middle of a city that is still very obviously Los Angeles and has signs saying Los Angeles all over it. Yeah. I mean, 
I am a big fan of certain 70s Euro horrors where they're set, they're, they're aimed at like an English language market and they're set in some kind of weird Italian or Spanish conception of what America might be like. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think this is what Danzig is going for. I think Danzig's concussed for much of the direction <laughs> of this film. Um, and it kind of shows in, in the technical aspects where it's sort of, it's very plain. It's yeah. very, he's he's rented an apartment, moved the couch to one side of the room and said action. And then away they go. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It, yeah. It's the opening shot when it sort of tracks into the room and the, the spider, God bless it, it's still there. But <laughs> as he's swooping around, it's like a bottle of champagne that somehow looks wrinkly on a table next to a couch with just <laughs> sort of generic throw cushions and pillows and stuff. It It's that weird set design where it's it looks like a show home, but you can yes. tell it's a set. And this is this is one of those things that uh, I think every young filmmaker who's starting out should learn. Absolutely do not make your film in a show home. It is both better and cheaper to find a mate who will allow you to film there for a weekend because the house looks actually lived in. It looks real. As soon yes. as I see a show home in a film, I don't think, woo, that's a lavish big home. I think this must have been made for about 10 pence. Yeah, and it's it's sad, though, because Danzig doesn't have any friends. But I'm sure if he did, <laughs> he would have asked them and they would have promptly said no, because they don't want spiders on their walls. But yeah, it, you bring up a good point there, though, and I think that's... I hate to just keep ragging on the genre, but one of the issues I have with horror is that, especially modern stuff, the stuff that I'm sent screener-wise, it looks very cheap. It's they've they've built a set and it doesn't look lived in. It just looks like they've went to IKEA, bought the bits mm. of furniture they needed for this scene, and then they'll keep the receipt so they can return it later on. Yeah, um, and it's that lived-in quality that bothers me. I mean, yeah. the, the original Evil Dead is a cheap film, but yeah. everything in it is believably worn and used and rickety and tumble down when it needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. And it's I I guess he would have tried to assimilate those qualities into his work, but it's mm. obviously I suppose we can give credence to the fact that this is his first time directing. Yeah. And he's coming from an art perspective. He's coming from music into film and it's a big gap to breach. There's definitely a lot of musicians who have made the leap rather well. Like mm. David Bowie. David Bowie did it gracefully, but he didn't direct. And yeah, I'm trying to think of a musician who was like had a solid directing career. I mean, we reviewed True Stories a bit back, and yeah. that was great, but I can't imagine David Byrne making a second film. Yeah, he couldn't have followed that up. And especially from sort of a, a career perspective, he wouldn't have been attached to project, you know, he wouldn't have been asked to do Rambo 3. Or he wouldn't have been <laughs> on the next Hollywood set. If or, he had, he'd however, watch it, right? <laughs> oh, without question, it'd be Rambo in the red convertible from True Stories, <laughs> swerving in and just going, I don't quite like it here. I'm going back to Texas. And then he just spins the car around and the whole film is just him on a road trip. Lovely. Absolutely. I've, I've always thought Rambo should have been played by Spalding Gray. He'd have been phenomenal as Spalding, uh, as, as Spalding Gray, as Rambo. He spent quite a lot of time with Spalding Gray. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, because I can't think anybody apart from genuinely Fred Durst with The Fanatic, which is a delightfully awful film. <laughs> um, 
and that the, to be fair though there's there's big names in music that have dabbled in films that have just not pulled it off like bob dylan bob yeah. dylan did um, a film with the writer of borat the oh, name escapes yeah. me and anonymous yeah Mast and anonymous completely incomprehensible film but it's it's stuff like that that's i, I suppose you know what we could probably i mean the beatles with Hard Day's Night, again, they didn't direct it though. So, no, no. It's that, I think that, it's... that there just seems to be some sort of barrier between being able to express yourself artistically in a lyric and being able to express yourself artistically in a film that yes. people just don't seem to jump, and I don't know what that would be. I suppose Nick Cave got the balance quite well with the assassination of Jesse James. True, um, true. But, but again, didn't direct. And I think it's I suppose it's a matter of too many pokers in the fire at that point. Yeah. Then, if a, if a musician wants to direct, especially in the case of Danzig, who, you know, a, a trilogy of stories in a ninety-minute window for a first-time director, it's it it is a big ask. It is because usually yeah. those anthology films like VHS, they're, they're usually one or two directors taking on a project and saying, "Well, I'll do this segment. I'll do this segment." Like I remember. XX from a couple of years back they uh, had yeah. a fair yeah. few directors but I, I don't remember that too well um, but yeah he's usually these sort of anthology pieces have different messages because they've got different directors if you've got one director for all segments you're going to get the same sort of project really yeah, I mean, the, the Corton brothers did it pretty well with uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, but I think it's a, it's a tall ask to compare Danzig with the Corton brothers in many ways. Because, like, the, the tragic thing is, I mean, we've been ragging on the opening story, but that's where he, like, gets rid of all of his ideas, isn't it? The Albino Spider oh, yeah. Jet. Yeah. That's the one which actually has some stuff happen in it. And the, the <laughs> next two were just almost kind of goodbye dragon in levels of nothing happening slowly. It's, he burnt himself out after 40 minutes. He burnt himself out where in the scene in The Albino Spider of Dejet, where a newsreader talks about a body found with a broken neck and finishes the report by saying, police are calling this murderer Le Neckbreaker. <laughs> That's it. That's his golden moment. You can't top that. Now, as someone who has studied journalism for three years <laughs> and now works in it, I... I would not publish that headline. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, we've had occasions where, obviously not murderers, but repeat offences have happened. Yeah. We would not call them, you know, if someone was stealing soup, we would not say we are now calling him Soup Thief Man. It's <laughs> it's the, the, the lack of focus on things that matter, like dialogue, like little names like that, like Le Neckbreaker. <laughs> it's... <laughs> He's ambitious in the wrong areas. So obviously you've got nipple eyes and a spider being some sort of message for whatever he's on about. Well, it, it turns know. into a sort of, um, not in the way that you were comparing uh, it to another film earlier, but it turns into a kind of a spider man. Um, and <laughs> this is a, it's literally a, a big tall sort of sheet white guy with eight uh, limbs and that's a tall ask for a low budget feature film and if I had written that into a script I would definitely definitely 
like check whether it was possible to have all of those limbs move. <laughs> Why didn't he just go down the usual independent director approach? Make a family drama in a in a house that's been lived in and make it a box office success and then do this. Do something else later. You're not gonna do John Carmen's Halloween. You're not gonna turn up and make seventy million dollars on like two hundred and fifty thousand. And it's I feel like there are moments in Veronica where Danzig's like, this is going to be the big sleeper hit. This is going to be my Blair Witch Project. And I suppose, no, there's no, there's not a chance. I, th- <laughs> I this like is one of those you, films. You were going for the redemptive reading for I was a second really there, trying, weren't you? When but it's then my, my brain clocked on to what I was seeing <laughs> and stopped. Because I was going to say, it's like midnight screenings aid these films a lot. Yeah. Now, Rocky Horror Picture Show is on a completely different level. That's a great movie. Um, but it was aided by Midnight Screening. Same for The Room. Um, mm. And I imagine stuff like Birdemic and the films of Neil Breen would benefit from that as well. I don't think Veronica would because mm. it's just so awkward at times. Not because of the acting or the technical merits. It just feels like this is a man actually trying. This is like his yeah. best shot at it. And th- there is something a little sad about that. Not in a sort of sad, mocking way, but genuinely quite... I'm, I'm quite distressed for Danzig. He, he's given it a go. This is like a passion project, and it's turned out so terribly. Because the thing about Glenn Danzig is uh, that he, he seems to be at this level in his career where people do mock him, yes, but people still mock him with a lot of affection behind it. You know, there are still so many metal fans who will talk about the Danzig records and Misfit records as being absolutely formative and nothing he says or does can take away their love for it, which is great. And I think he misunderstands it. He could lean into it. He could become a kind of Shatner figure who's kind of shrewdly in on the joke of how people see him. But when people, for example, as recently happened, found a picture on his girlfriend's Instagram of him wrapping Christmas presents and they made memes of it, he was really annoyed by that. He thought it was really like beneath his dignity. And I just thought, well, you can't turn this around just by sort of stamping your foot. You have to lean into it a bit. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's... I think that this might take us a bit off track, but it's sort of the reappraisal that people give to American comedies of the early 2000s. Stuff like mm. Freddy Got Fingered, stuff like Dirty Work from Tom Green and Norm MacDonald, respectively. Yeah. That sort of reappraisal, it doesn't reignite their career, but it lets people see them in a different and more broad light. And what Danzig has here is the opportunity to become even relevant to a small pocket of the internet that may not know him for his work and it's it's that extra audience that can guide him to solve something new after veronica and after all of his musical work and it's i suppose it's a matter of just from his perspective it's a matter of self-respect that he is known for this heavy metal stuff and he really sees himself as this guy that can conjure up fear out of imagery that just isn't scary anymore and he's sort of clinging on to the past a little bit Mm. but at the same time it, it's it's very hard to accept a new image of yourself 40 years down the line after what made you famous is still, I imagine, quite popular even on a modern scale. I imagine there's heavy metal rock bands that are out now 
Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, even as an outsider, one of the things that I really respect about metal is that it's always had a consistent, large audience. And there have been yeah. some times when it's been very fashionable and it's been very easy to get that audience. And there are some times when it's been totally unfashionable, but that hasn't changed the fan base, which I think is really endearing. That's precisely it. It's sort of genres in pop culture will come and go, but it, obviously metal survived for so long. It's not exactly a, a Britpop or country scenario where they've sort of just up and down and then yeah. just died off for a bit and then Mumford and Sons or William Shatner come in and start trying to revitalize the thing. <laughs> yes. But metal has always been very consistent where it's it's broad enough that it has so many subgenres to it that it probably can't die unless yeah. everybody sort of up sticks and move to a new genre because for every Glenn Danzig you've got someone like Ozzy Osbourne who while they might look very similar with the black long hair and the sort of bats and spiders persona it's their music's vitally different mm, mm. I mean you mentioned trying to frighten people with unscary imagery and I, I my notes immediately went to the start of uh, the second story change of face where I said, at least when cop movies have a scene set in a strip club, there's something else going on in the foreground. <laughs> yeah, I think what's happened here, and I'm no expert, I didn't work on the film, but I think Danzig has accidentally left his camera on when just going about <laughs> his day. Um, and once he realised that this had happened, he, he, you know, he spent £20,000 on recorded footage, and his producers have said, well, well, what are we going to do? You spent £20,000 recording scenes of a strip club and you went, aha, I'll make this a fucking story. I'll do it. And that's and it. He's boy, it. does he ever do it. Oh, God, it's one of the... I suppose, to, to some degree, his appeal for this movie is the gore and the guts and the blood and the sort of soft core pornography that's the boobs yeah to a great extent it is a very titty boobs blood guts and gore is essentially what he's going for now there's a fine line between installing it into your narrative and just having a strip club promo halfway through your movie uh he doesn't quite straddle that line as best as danzig could but it's I, i suppose it's like He's trying to set the scene, but he does it for too long. He does it for 20 minutes, like those pretentious Hollywood movies that he doesn't seem to like <laughs> yes. that much. Yes. Um, but the the literal context of the title of that segment as well is just, it's too on the nose to mean anything, which is ironic because the other two are too confusing to mean anything at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. And it has it has another great sort of police scene where they go outside and find that the killer, who is just called Mystery Girl, has like left a victim with a face peeled off, and one of the cops just goes, "There's your motive. They wanted a face." <laughs> not exactly cracker, are you? <laughs> I yeah. Did you not see that Columbo episode where where he was hunting <laughs> down the the face ripping victim, and he's like, "Ah, oh, that's their motive. They like faces." It's very much Hannibal Lecter, but a la The Office when they did a riff on him in that one episode where he cuts the face off and wears it and goes, like, you know. I, I Just don't one know. more thing. I couldn't help noticing on my way in that you have a collection of people's faces nailed to your wall. It's an art installation. It's, it's an old Andy Warhol we found in the attic. <laughs> it's... 
I, I like to think that there is a point behind all of the faces thing where it's sort of a, ah, one person could be many, but the same. But I don't think Danzig's bothered by what subtext is. In, no, I mean, in, in the great words of Garth Marenghi, subtext is for cowards. Yeah, he definitely believes that subtext is for cowards. <laughs> I mean, as you say, there's great potential in this idea of someone, a stripper who is defined by her image and who she is visually taking the faces of other people. But even when you've, you've got all this stuff, you've got the ripped off faces, you've got her having no name, you've got her stripping while wearing a mask, you've got all of these things that are being plugged in. Danzig still doesn't have her change identity. When she tries to escape and, and like flee the cops and go to another club, she changes her name from Mystery Girl to Mysteria. You think, yeah, that'll throw them off the scent, won't it? It's very much like a a Grand Theft Auto scenario where you turn a corner and you just sort of stay there and then everybody <laughs> forgets you there and you can just drive back out into the very people that know what you look like. It's not as if, ironically, the whole changed face thing, it doesn't really do much. It's No, no. They know who they're looking for. If they just follow the, the pile of bodies without faces on them, they're bound to look up something, aren't they? But it's, it's the lack of consistency in the script that really hurts this one and I guess that's because Danzig wrote it as well but <laughs> again yes. for first time <laughs> you can't you've got to stop saying for a first time for a first I time can't this help is, it. I... for a first time this is bad right Night it of the Living bad. Dead is a first time horror <laughs> film this this isn't but... good but ironically, with George Romero, the two best parts of his series, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, his subtext didn't even occur to him, especially not for Dawn of the Dead, with the whole, yeah. ah, they're all returning to the supermarket because consumerism is a venomous little parasite. It's un Ironically, when George Romero learned the meaning of subtext, his films went downhill. They actually was... became a lot less subtle in a lot of ways, they did, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. Because uh, subtext is for cowards, especially <laughs> in the horror genre. Yes. But no, I think there is a line between. So th I think there's three categories. There's somehow someone making the film so incredible that the first time sets up a chain of brilliant films like George Romero, like Quentin Tarantino, like Wes Anderson. Mm. You've got the middle category of people that are sort of, all right, they'll rise up later on, like. Taika Waititi, his first few films, eh, they're okay. And then, you know, you have What We Do in the Shadows, which is quite good. And they've got uh, the one he did with Sam Neill, Hunt for the Wilder People. Beautiful is it film. Hunt for the Wilder yeah. People? Fantastic, yeah. yeah. And then you've got the third category of people who have made awful films, aren't going to bounce back from it, but are still going to get work. Yeah. So people like, um, I can't remember his name, but I was meant to interview him and it fell through. The guy that directed the Sweet Life on Deck movie and Cats and Dogs 3. <laughs> he he I, did a was, film about surfers. I wanted to jump in straight away there, but you have defeated me. <laughs> what were you going to say? I did. I did. As soon as he said, I can't remember his name, I thought, oh, I'm good at movie trivia. I'll come in. <laughs> and then I heard what his credits were, and I thought, oh, no, I'm, I'm completely lost. Sweet Life. Sorry, I'm just Googling the Sweet Life movie. <laughs> Sean McNamara. Okay. He's directed such classics as, and then so Glenn Danzig's <laughs> first effort. Um, he's given it a go, and I don't think it's for him, but he's done another feature as well. So we'll see how that goes. 
Yes. Yeah, I can't remember who's in the cast for that, but I have a horrible feeling we'll have an excuse to cover it if we want it. But yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's ironically, considering how bad he is at direction, um, I made a note and I think I can barely read my own writing, but I wrote the twist of Kane fine or fire. I can't quite make that up from his first album. It's quite good. I don't mind okay. that. Um, I wasn't sorry when it had stopped but I wouldn't have paused it either. So, you know, I think as well, it's difficult for him to stand out now because this just in, in, in sort of the context of the day we're recording this, it's been a very strong day for music. Um, mm. Damon Albarn and Jarvis Cocker both released a new song, a, pe- a piece. ABBA's got new move, songs out and they're making a new album. So mm. to kind of dive into Glenn Danzig doing Elvis Presley covers is a bit hard to swallow. Yeah. Yeah, I must admit I didn't do as much musical research as I normally do, and I think it it would be a bit of a weird shift going from that gorgeous new Saint-Étienne album or Little Sims to to this. <laughs> it's you know, I what was it? He he was in Danzig, and I was looking through Danzig's records. So they did Danzig one, two, and three, mm. and they seem to have been very well received. And then they did an album just titled Four. And it's then good. five. It's, it's shaving it down, more minimalist. It's <laughs> subtext is for cowards. <laughs> and, and then it's when he gets the five, six, and seven. And bearing in mind this is 96 to 2002, it's stuff like Black Acid Devil, Satan's Child, I Lucifery, which I imagine is to capitalize on the success of I Robot. But <laughs> I could be wrong. Um, but that trilogy there is it's the satanism symbolism that has been so mass produced in that period of time that it just doesn't mean anything anymore and in hindsight it's not scary what is scary is danzig sings elvis which released last year (laughs) yes i think after the sort of black metal bands in the 90s in scandinavia where they pushed their sort of fondness for satanism into burning down churches and carrying out actual murders there's a sense that you know that you can't go any, them. yeah you, <laughs> you can't go any further down this path and no. equally you can't just put like a bat on the cover of your album and have everyone go oh no anymore <laughs> you know it's it's kind of a dead end yeah it's very much a sort of uh, how sensitive people are to what they see in film. Like, I, I imagine that people in the 30s, when The Mummy and Dracula and Frankenstein were all coming out, mm. terrifying. Mm. So, obviously, it's the famous story of Alfred Hitchcock would wait outside of the screenings of Psycho and people would run out because they were that yeah. terrified. That, I think, to me as well, personally, I don't find Psycho particularly scary. Mm. But the reason it survived for so long is that we can appreciate the cultural value it has and the impact it has on the genre and what it means for the genre. With Veronica, there's no such sentiment to that. And I imagine it's because he hasn't moved on from what made him famous in the 80s and the 90s, which is the sort of satanic symbols, which were for a time scary, but the culture has become incentivized to just not care for them because it's yeah. seen it that much. It's always in the pop culture remit. So eventually something's going to lose its its meaning and its its emotional response. For Danzig, that means his whole shtick as this kind of heavy metal rocker is gone. He can't get that back. 
yeah, I think when you've got satanic imagery in like Lil Nas X videos, it becomes harder to say that, you know, oh, this is outside of the musical mainstream. Precisely. We've, we've yeah. got an upside down cross and everything. You know, it's, it, and I think it's, it's ironic that you should say this, that it's no longer shocking. And I think you're right, by the way, but it's ironic considering Danzig's own attitudes that he, he has he's not the worst for this, but he has been doing a bit of going on about cancel culture and how people today are too sensitive. And yeah. it struck me as kind of revealing that he said something like, um, oh, back back in the punk rock days, we just did what we did and we didn't care if it offended people. You can't do yeah. that nowadays. People would get offended. You think, well, that, that sounds like the world hasn't changed that much. It more yeah. sounds like, you know, you haven't changed that much precisely yeah and i think as well just to sort of add to that it's a lot of stuff like the sex pistols and the clash it was their their point was to cause offense it was to challenge the norm but there's a big difference between challenging the norm and retaining the stereotypes and the provocative imagery of something that no longer has that effect so when people say ah move on that's not you know it's not relevant anymore such as satanic symbols it's not a matter of people are still offended by it's people just don't care because it's lost its meaning sometimes this process is good i mean you mentioned the sex pistols the fact that the sex pistols no longer sound like the most extreme frightening noisy rock band you've ever heard has actually exposed that underneath it all they were always a pretty tight rock and roll band and it's easy to appreciate that now it's it's always going to be the case of like there'll there'll be artists working now with the people find distressing and offensive in 20 years time will be considered geniuses of the genre mm. it's it's a matter of perspective and the it's like we mentioned earlier about dirty work and freddie got fingered it's the reappraisal that comes over the passing of time and a new generation it's you know the beach boys and pet sounds that's and, and just just to clarify you think that all of this will happen to verotica you think it'll oh come without to question yes known yeah. as the pet sounds I... of a genre yeah <laughs> I'm happy to be quoted as saying that Veronica is the pet sounds of the horror genre. Um, I'm not a betting man. I've made two bets in my life, and it's just I think it's just coincidence that I've won them both. I'm I'm willing to make a third that okay. by the end of this decade, Veronica will have been reappraised. I mean, I wouldn't bet against it because the, <laughs> one of one of the things that often makes people come round to a film, to an older film, is when you can look back at it and say, "God, can you imagine anything being made like this today?" And sometimes that's del- you know a, a delusion. You know, people can yeah. say that about The Exorcist. There weren't many films made like The Exorcist when The Exorcist came out, that's why it was a sensation. No one had seen anything like it before. Um, But I think it will be very easy to look back on Verotica and say, you know, this aging heavy metal musician got the money to make a trilogy of almost entirely plotless horror stories with a bunch of porn stars. That's really weird. That would never happen nowadays. Precisely. And I do think to some degree that Danzig still thinks, oh, I've made a horror movie, it's got sex symbols and it's got porn stars and it's got spiders. He thinks that's probably pretty rock and roll, which in of itself, the term rock and roll and the whole, that sort of thing that I've just cringed on the inside doing that. But that (laughs) itself is outdated when at a time it used to be very cool and a very provocative image. Shall we, yeah, 
Shall, shall we go on to the third segment? Because I feel yes, like we're yeah. actively running away from talking <laughs> we, about the film. At certain uh, we've left the best to last, at least. The bit where he forgot just all of what Veronica was meant to be and just gave up. <laughs> this is, uh, let, let me see if I'm getting this right, Dorokia, Countess <laughs> of Blood. And th- this is the one, I mean, change of face never gets past its opening premise. You know, as soon as you get that this woman is taking people's faces, it never goes anywhere else. Yeah, no. But this is this is sort of not getting past an old premise. And you think, well, yeah, I suppose it is quite gross to think about a woman bathing in blood. But since we already know the story of Elizabeth Bathory, and since it's already been the basis for countless other films, what else you got? Precisely, yeah. It's it's the desensitization, and as well as that, it's it's not like he does anything with it, really. No, it's no, no. It's just there. It's kind of hanging on. It's if anything, the oddly enough, the strongest one is first. Yeah, the strongest one, mainly because of how odd the imagery in that opening moment is. Hmm. For the third in this piece, I mean, for something I watched only a couple hours ago, I couldn't tell you much about it. I can tell you it's about. Elizabeth Bathory, and I don't know much about her, but I know enough to know that it's sort of a dead concept and that people have adapted it for a long, long time. Even if it's just sort of slightly, ever so slightly, just sort of trickled it into the narrative. Hammer Horror used to do it every now and then. Mm. For Danzig to do it now, it's it's to imply that he has something important to say on it or a twist that would provide something new that the audience hasn't thought about. But there isn't. And it's it's kind of yeah damning of the whole sort of trilogy that Veronica is old ideas and old presentations of what Danzig believes is scary but it's got no new twist it's still the same message he thinks what was scary 40 years ago is still scary now I think it's telling when you look at some of the other Elizabeth Bathory movies and you you mentioned Hammer and indeed there is a Hammer movie uh, about Elizabeth Bathory, uh, Countess Dracula starring Ingrid Pitt. So I think when, when you're doing something that Hammer were doing in the early 70s, you should have a rethink of uh, of how progressive and forward thinking this is. There is... I mean, some, sorry, something like The Neon Demon. Yeah. Something like that. Provocative, new, exciting. <laughs> What's Veronica? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, in fact, the Elizabeth Bathory section in Verotica is like not new, even within the context of Verotica, because there, it goes to a bit where the killer has like a trophy room of the heads of her victims mounted, and Danzig is clearly going, heads on a wall, man. Have you ever seen anything like this before? And you think, yes, I have in the last segment where this also <laughs> happened. I think the the purse strings of Danzig were a little bit tight, and he thought, well, I'm going to get the most out of this cupboard. And he did it <laughs> twice. The MI, MFI self-assembly CBL uh, <laughs> Killers trophy room, yeah. I, I can understand that from his perspective. It was a bloody pain in the ass putting those two shelves up. Like, I see why he <laughs> wanted to use them more than once. One of them, the bottom's on the wrong way around. But <laughs> I'm not taking them apart again. <laughs> I feel like the, the best episodes of this show when we get an insight into the host's life and the fact that the bottom shelf of your DVD <laughs> shelf is on back. Yeah, so it's that qualified. one there. 
I've put the bottom slot on the wrong way around, so it's it's meant to have like a nice white finish on the side of it to look very nice. It's just plywood on that side instead. Um, so that's why I put my vinyl box in front of it to cover it up for this episode. <laughs> Uh, that's why there's always a carrier bag on my floor as well, because that covers the other side. <laughs> Just a nice little nod into how I live. Please excuse the vodka bottles. <laughs> <laughs> there's also an empty bottle of bourbon down there. Oh dear. And and you drank all of that while watching Verosica. I did. The whole bottle. Yeah. All gone. It's amazing I'm still sat. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's what Danzig would have wanted, though. For me to watch this with a whole bottle of bourbon, absolutely. And I feel Rock like and roll on the. <laughs> oh, I did it wrong, didn't I? I did it wrong. Um, but no, I think it's. I I suppose now, especially because of how much content comes out per year, so bad it's good. That term is thrown around quite a lot. Mm. I do think Veronica is a genuine so bad it's good feature because it has that sort of perspective of what's he doing? Like, he's gone mad. There are moments in this film where it's not the work of a sane individual. It's the work of someone that thinks he's being edgy and cool, but in actual fact it's something we associate with a very old generation. Yeah. And it's like, it's interesting that we are getting some of those, as you say, so bad they're good features now, because I remember about 10 years ago I was seriously concerned that people had... Uh, lost the ability to differentiate between a terrible movie and a disappointing one. You know, when you would have people say, oh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is like the worst movie I've ever seen. Prometheus is the worst movie I've ever seen. Yes, and I think, well, yeah. you know, I'm not going to go massively to bat for them, but if they're the worst movie you've ever seen, you've had a pretty charmed life. So yeah. In the middle of an increasingly homogenous movie scene dominated by a shrinking number of global corporations, it is very exciting that you do occasionally still get something that is just so miscalculated. Yeah, and I've always sort of believed that bad is better than boring. Yeah, yeah. It's, at, at the very least, a bad film is provoking that reaction. It's provoking an active response from me to saying, this is dreadful and I must talk about this with other people. Whereas a boring film, it's hard to sort of get into why a film is boring because mm. a lot of it, the times it's just, well, it's nothing nothing special, nothing new, it's nothing bold. Veronica isn't anything new, bold or exceptional, but it's because of how mismanaged the actual core of it is. These moments that have been shown to us time and time again, how badly they're handled. That's the beauty of it, and I think that's what's the most interesting part of Veronica and why it's so bad it's good. Yeah. If this were a film where he just potted along and made something competent, we wouldn't be talking about this. No, no way, no. If only he'd made something competent. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I think that's a, that, that's a very fine note to end on. Um, Veronica, un unquestionably recommended listeners. Oh, without question. I'm going to order the Blu-ray. <laughs> I'm going to get rid of all of the, everything on my shelf, all the books, all the films, get rid of them. I just want Veronica on one shelf, and that's it. What if you added Veronica to your shelf and it turned out to be the thing that finally caused your misbuilt uh, Ikea? <laughs> it's not misbuilt. Shelf. I was just clumsy. It's, <laughs> there's a very big difference. It's I mean, 
<laughs> it's already got the commuter by Liam Neeson on there. If it was going to collapse now, that would have been the time for it. I've got a the the snowman that Michael Fassbender film. I've oh, got the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got a lot of shit on these shelves. I'm actually in the process of clearing them out, but I have been doing that since February, and I I, I can honestly say hand on heart, I've I've gotten more stuff than I've actually gotten rid of. So it, it's very much a two steps forward, eight steps back situation. It's a very familiar uh, problem to have. Yes. Yeah. I think adding Veronica will help, though. <laughs> In that it'll remind you not to buy things. It will, yeah. <laughs> it's a version therapy for film watches. Above my desk, got a very nice Ralph Steadman print of a drawing of Hunter Thompson. I'm going to take that down and I'm going to put up a big picture of Glenn Danzig. And it's going to be him <laughs> pointing at me saying, no more films. So I do. I've noticed you've been buying some Blu-rays recently, and now I'm going to sit sit you down and make you smoke a whole pack of Verotica just to show you the error oh. of your ways. I've already seen the error of my ways, and I'm repenting by buying Verotica. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Uh, listeners, if, if you enjoyed that, and I mean, you've, but you've probably enjoyed it more than we enjoyed making it, I think... Um, <laughs> You can donate to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, where you can get a monthly bonus episode of this show, exclusive access to our uh, other movie podcast, Director's Lottery, which isn't available anywhere else, and my Doctor Who reviews. In the meantime, we'll be back next week with more pop screen. I've been Graham. I've been Ewan. And we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.